I think we'll begin with prayer tonight and commit ourselves to the Lord. Praise God. Father, we do thank you so much that the Word of God declares that where two or three are gathered in your name, there he is in the midst. And Father, we thank you for the presence of Jesus here. I also want to thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge him tonight, all of us, as the only teacher that there is. And Father, we thank you that we have that anointing within us, and it's that anointing that leads us into all truth. I would pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that through these mature things that we're studying together, that you will confirm our faith, that you will shore us up in our faith, and that, Father, we might find that we are more relaxed than we've ever been, more happy, more faith-filled than we've ever been, because we know the one in whom we've placed our trust. And I do thank you tonight that you are a faithful God. You're faithful to us. And your promises are yea and amen to us. And Father, we thank you that not only have you given us enough power to get through this life, but you've given us enough power so that we can get through eternity also. And in eternity we shall be glorious, for we shall be like him. Oh, Father, I just thank you so much for all the bounty you've poured upon us. And we would acknowledge tonight that none of us deserves it. Not one of us here deserves it. And yet, by your grace, you've poured it out upon each one of us. Therefore, Father, as we approach this subject, as we learn more about your character, Father, I pray that it should drive us to our knees and to bow our head in adoration, because you are a mighty and wonderful God. We thank you for loving us so much. Therefore, Father, just anoint us. Anoint my lips tonight in Jesus' name that the truth may indeed be shouted abroad in this land, that our God reigns. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise your wonderful name. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. It is almost unbelievable to me that after tonight, we have only four more Bible studies of this series to go. Every single course that I do contains 14 studies. The Lord told me that every course was going to have 14 studies, and it's always exactly fitted in. And with 14 studies available, I knew that I was able to cover 10 attributes of God. Do you remember that we said that, that God has an infinite number of attributes, and I had to choose which ones I would actually deal with. An attribute is a characteristic. It's part of God's character. And I chose ten characteristics. Now, after tonight, we have only four more to actually deal with. If you're uh, slightly befuddled by that, can I just list them? The first characteristic I dealt with, the first attribute, was the attribute of sovereignty, that God does as he wills. The second and third I combined in the talk called holiness. And those two attributes, number two is absolute righteousness, number three is absolute justice, then we came on to the first of the big O's, omniscience, that God knows everything. He always has. He's never forgotten anything, and he's never learned anything. Last time we dealt with omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And tonight, therefore, we're on the last of the big O's, which is omnipresence. Now, by this time, you should know that whenever you see the four letters, O-M-N-I, omni, it means all. And therefore, you don't have to be terribly intelligent for you to know that the word omnipresence means that God is everywhere. Now, having said that, that is the simplest definition of omnipresence that there is, and I have to say that that is the one that is normally given out today, and most people begin there and end there. They say, well, omnipresence, God is everywhere. Or if the, you really have a puzzled look on your face, they might say, well, let me give you an example. Do you remember how we saw earlier on in this course how everyone seems to want to give examples? And they might say this, and I've heard both of these said, omnipresence is like this. One, it's like the atmosphere that's around the earth. You see, wherever you go on the face of the earth, you'll find the atmosphere. You see, the atmosphere's everywhere, so God is everywhere. And if you're simple about this, you're nodding and saying, yes, I, I get that. 
A rather amusing uh, example, and the second one I would quote, was given by a lovely Christian man, and it really amused me at first, except it's not quite true. But he said, well, omnipresence is like this, he said. Um, I am not omnipresent. He said, I can only be in London or in Exeter. I can't be in Exeter and London at the same time. I can only be in Exeter or London or London or Exeter. He said, ah, but the A30 can. The A30 can be in London, and at the same time, the A30 is in Exeter, and the A30 is in every village in between the two that it passes through. And when I first heard that, I thought, that's very amusing, and I quite like that. Now, the trouble is, and you will all know this if you've been to the rest of this course, it just can't be that simple, can it? And you're quite right, it's not that simple either. For omnipresence doesn't just say that God is everywhere. What omnipresence says is this, that the whole of God is everywhere. Now you just think about that. The whole of God is in every place that there is. Wherever there's a place, the whole of God is represented there. Now do you see, that's not like the atmosphere. We have atmosphere above us today, but not the whole atmosphere. We've got a little bit of the atmosphere. In fact, if in Bognor Regis they had the whole atmosphere over them, you'd have a problem, wouldn't you? You'd have a problem if you lived in Bognor, because the weight of the atmosphere would be so enormous you wouldn't be able to breathe. And you'd have a problem if you didn't live in Bognor, because you wouldn't have any atmosphere left. Similarly, the other picture falls down because it is true that part of the A30 is in London, but all of it isn't, because if all of it were, then none of it would be in Exeter. And similarly, a part of the A30 is in Exeter, but not all of it. So these definitions fall down. But the wonderful thing about our God is this, that wherever there's a place, the whole of him is there. Now, you may not have ever heard that stated before, yet you all believe it. In my prayer at the beginning, I quoted from Matthew 18, didn't I? I did it quite deliberately. That where two or three are gathered together in his name, there is he in the midst. Now, we believe, don't we, as we are gathered together here in the name of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is actually here. What, all of him? Yes, all of him in this room. Well, that's marvellous. We've got the whole of Jesus in the middle of this room. But all around this area tonight, there are groups of two or three Christians gathered together who also believe that they've got the whole of Jesus in their room as well. And not only in this area, but all around Britain today, why, all around the world, you've got hundreds of thousands of meetings going on. In Helsinki tonight, they have a Bible study. They have loads of Bible studies in Helsinki every single evening. And when they gather together, I bet you that the pastor says, isn't it wonderful that Jesus is in the midst tonight? And here is Jesus. He can be totally here, but he's totally everywhere else as well. That's omnipresence. If this weren't true, what we would have to say was this, Lord, we thank you that part of you is here tonight. And what we'd have to believe then is that actually the little finger of Jesus was here tonight or a bit of his ear or something like that while the rest of him was scattered about to try and cover all the other meetings that are going on. Omnipresence is the most wonderful thing for the whole of God is represented in every place at the same time. Now that's what omnipresence is. And I'll tell you something, I can't say to you, well it's like this because it isn't like anything. In fact, although we can all believe it, and by the Holy Spirit we can nod and say, yes, 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 if you just applied your mind to it, well, your mind would switch off. We can't take that, because we're restricted to this creation. And in the creation, if all your money is in that bank, then that means you haven't got any money in any other bank. But in God, isn't that wonderful? He can be entirely in every place. Mystery. Spirituals speaking to spirituals, and yet we all know it's true. Our hearts tell us that it is. Why? My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Do you mean that the Holy Spirit dwells in my body? Yes, he does, in here. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in my Lord, and I'm complete in him. And the Holy Spirit manifests Jesus in me. Well, isn't that wonderful? So here I am, I am the temple of the Holy Ghost. So are you, so are you, so are you, so are you. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit in, is in every one of us. 
Now, that is, can only be so if we have this attribute called omnipresence, and the wonderful thing is that the Bible says, yes, it's true. Omnipresence is a fact of our God. He is everywhere manifested wholly at once. Wonderful. So let's turn to the Bible, and let's see a few passages which teach us about omnipresence. And you've noticed right through this course, I have never attempted to make this simple. Because the minute you simplify it, you demean God. And the moment you detract from God in the slightest way, he's no longer God. I have to state it as it is. So let's go to Psalm 139, <clears throat> which is a lovely, lovely psalm indeed. We've dealt with verse 1 to verse 6 of this when I spoke, I think, on omniscience. But I want to go from verse 7 onwards. Now, can I just read it through? And then I want to take every verse in turn. Let me just read it through. Verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Asked David. And whither shall I free, flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Now there's our little passage. Let's take it from verse 7. You know, don't you, that in the ancient languages, not only do they ask a question, but the ancient language tells you the answer to the question. In Greek, if ever you have a question asked, you know whether the answer is yes or no. Isn't that convenient, by the way? Right? You say to your little boy, um, do you want something to eat this lunchtime? And the little boy will know the way you phrase the question, whether he should say yes or no. In other words, you're going to have something to eat, my lad, this lunchtime. And the ancient languages did that. Now, in verse 7... The answer to the question asked in verse 7 is, there is nowhere that I can go to hide from thy presence. That is omnipresence. Why, he says, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Nowhere is the answer, because there isn't a place where you're not. Omnipresence. Then he begins to think a bit more about this. Look at this, verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. And most of us have no trouble with that whatsoever. Well, that's quite right. God is in his heaven, and all is well on the earth. Wonderful. Yes, God, God's there in heaven. But what about the next bit? Look at this. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And immediately, some of you might say, well, hold on, isn't that a bit bad? I mean, saying that God is in hell, isn't that uh, really something that we oughtn't to say? But listen, omnipresence demands that it's so. Because any place that exists, if God is omnipresent, he must be there. And hell is a real place. It actually does exist, you see. And people, when they die, some people go to this place. Now, if it exists, God has to be there. If he's not there, then he can't be omnipresent. Because there's one place where he isn't. So we have to say, you see, that God really does exist in hell as well as in every other place. And that gives us a little problem, which I'll be outlining later on and giving you the answer to, right? But there he says, even if I choose to go down into hell, you're there too. Then the next one. If I take the wings of the morning, that's his first statement, and his second statement is, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now let's take the first part of verse 9. What does he mean by the wings of the morning, or the wings of the dawn? Do you know that very often in the ancient scriptures, the sun is seen to have wings? We have it in Malachi 4, verse 2, don't we? When it says that the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And the ancient people always represented the sun having wings on it. The Egyptian sign for a sun, the hieroglyphic sign, is a circle with two wings coming out either side. And 
What this shows is that to the ancient mind, the sun had movement associated with it. This does not mean just that to an observer on earth, the sun seemed to cross the sky. No. It was the fact that they looked at the sun and they saw that there, were, there was light coming out of it. You see? The rays of the sun were what were called the wings of the sun. And it's an implication that they knew that light actually traveled from the sun and arrived on the earth. What actually he's saying here is this. If I decide to travel at the speed of light, that is 186,000 miles every second, will I escape from your presence like that? And the answer is no, sir. If you decided, or if it were possible for you to travel as fast as that, guess what would happen? Well, God will be waving you off from one end, and he will be there to meet you at the other end where you decided to go. Not only so, he would be in every place along the path, and you couldn't possibly escape. So he says, well, if I go at the speed of light, will I escape him? No, I can't escape him, because he's everywhere. God doesn't even have to keep up with you. Every place you go, he is there. There is no movement in God. He is just there, and no matter how fast you travel, there he is. So, that's no use. No good buying an expensive car and thinking you can rush off away from this place and up to John O'Groats and thereby escape the Lord. It won't work because the Lord is up in John O'Groats as well and there are lovely Christians in John O'Groats who have Jesus there this evening as well. Wonderful. And so he says, well, what about the second thing that's open to me? And in the second part of verse 9, <clears throat> or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. What did he mean by the most uttermost parts of the sea. Well, remember, this is written by a man living in the Holy Land. Now, all the land to the east, that's India, or what they call Parthia, Parthia um, China, and all the other areas out there, they knew something about those. They knew something about the Mediterranean area. The area they were frightened of was the bit that was beyond the Mediterranean Sea. You see, the sailors used to travel all around the Mediterranean Sea, and at the other end, on the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, they came to what we call the Straits of Gibraltar. What they called in the ancient world the Pillars of Hercules. And most people used to land there and then turn their ship around and head back into the safe waters of the Mediterranean. For out there, they thought, there was dangerous stuff. Some of them thought that the sea actually ended there, that it poured off the edge of the earth out there. So you were never to go out in that direction. The one group of people who didn't accept that were a group of people called the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians sailed through, quite happily, through the um, Pillars of Hercules, and they found there were countries out there. They discovered, for example, the west coast of Spain. They discovered Great Britain an island, and probably Iceland, and probably Greenland. And do you also know that there are some scholars who think that they were the first to reach America? Because on the east coast of America, tablets have been found with Phoenician writing all over them. Now, if they're genuine, it means, literally, that the Phoenicians did discover America. So what he's saying here is this. Look, I've heard rumors that even through the gates of Hercules, there are islands, there are lands out there. So he says, well, say I traveled to them. Could I escape from you there? Jonah tried. Do you remember? He got a Phoenician boat, Phoenician boat out to Tarshish, which is the area I'm talking about, the western end of the Mediterranean. But God still located him there, and God was still there. And he cried unto God. Do you remember from the whale's belly or the great fish's belly? God was already there. So what we would say is, what well, even if I dwell in the British Isles or in America, I still can't run away from God. God is there as well. Absolutely true. That's a lovely statement of omnipresence. Then he says, verse 10, Even there shall thy right hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but night, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. So God is everywhere, and there is no escaping him at all. Now there's David stating omnipresence. 
but God himself states it. Let's turn to Jeremiah 23. And in Jeremiah 23, <clears throat> and verse 23 and verse 24, here is God stating omnipresence. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. And God asks this question. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Do I only live near you, you people, or do I live further out as well? And then he says, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? And here is a marvellous statement. For, for us it means this, that without multiplication and without expansion, God not only occupies heaven and earth, he occupies all the space outside heaven and earth as well, onto infinity. God is totally present everywhere, therefore there is nowhere you can go where he isn't. Now there is the doctrine of omnipresence. Okay? Now many make a mistake about this. And it's so funny how it all of us have this tendency to reduce God down to manageable proportions. We see this in the work of God, and all of us have been tempted at times to think this. We know God is with us, and so we tend to think that unless you're with us, you've missed the boat. I've heard, actually, a man stand up in a pulpit, and he was from a certain strain of Christianity. He said this, he said, listen, unless you join us, you're not in the work of God at all. And what he was trying to do was limit God's omnipresence, you see, to say that, well, he's here, we know he's here, and because he's here, he can't be any, anywhere else or doing anything else. Omnipresence says that God can work in any direction that he chooses, and in any place that he chooses, and in any way that he chooses. That's a statement of it. Many people have tried to limit God, and it always is a mistake. Do you remember the famous time when the Syrians did? Can we just read that little um, story in 1 Kings and chapter 20? Because it's a warning to us all that we don't do this. In 1 Kings and chapter 20, here is this very famous statement of the Syrians. Now I'm going to read from verse 21 to verse 30 so that we see something of the background. Here are a heathen nation making this mistake about the God of Israel. You see, their gods weren't omnipresent. Their gods were very limited. They had a God of this and a God of that and a God of this. Most religions have that type of thing. They have a God of, of love, a God of wisdom, a God of education, right? A God that deals with that area and a God which deals with this area, but our God, hallelujah, is one God and he deals with every area. And that's what they found so hard to cope with. So, in verse 21, And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Assyrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against thee. And the servants of the king of Syria have said unto him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. See that? Got to explain their defeat somehow. Their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. Surely we should be stronger than they. You see, their god is a specific god. And of course the Syrians had chariots, and chariots were no good on the hills. You see? And so they thought, well, fighting them in the hills, of course we're going to lose. We couldn't bring our chariots to bear. Right? And anyway, their god is probably the god up there. So now we're going to fight on the plain, and down here on the plain, we'll use our chariots, and our God is the God of the plain, their God isn't, so we'll win. All right, verse 24. I'll, I'll read 23 again. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And number thee an army, like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice and did so. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. 
And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. But with God on your side, you always outnumber the enemy. That's what they hadn't learnt. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. You see, they were actually attacking his character, and he's not going to have it. He is God everywhere, and he's going to prove it. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians an hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. And there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city, into an inner chamber." And you imagine this, all the soldiers run back and they line the wall that is around the city. And they're all on top of the wall and others are at the bottom, you know, passing up equipment and all the rest. And God says, oh, well, hold on a minute. You know, you've had a hard day. He leans against the wall, down it goes, and all those thousands were destroyed. God is simply proving to the Syrians here, he's the God of every place. And can I warn you against thinking that God is only the God of the mountaintop experience? Sometimes we fall into that trap, you know. We think it's only those who are rejoicing that really have the blessing and the presence of God in their lives. But I've learnt this. It's when you're going through difficult waters as well that our God is there. He is the God of the hills. Yes, he's the God of the valleys also. And it depends where you live, you know. In some places, the hills are nice and cool and refreshing. You see, they really are. And the valleys are just dry, dried up areas. In other places, it's the valleys that are lush, and the mountaintops that are bare. You see? Well, wherever it is, and whatever condition it is, God is God in that condition. And this is marvellous for us, no matter what condition you are in, God is God and is with you in that particular condition. Now that's what we can learn from this. The Syrians were wrong, and don't you be wrong about your thinking. Omnipresence says, whatever condition you are in, God is there with you. Lovely. It wasn't just the heathen, however, that made this error. Do you know the Jews did as well? The Jews knew that God tabernacled in the tabernacle. He dwelt there. And they used to think that unless you went to the tabernacle, you couldn't worship God, because God dwells over there. I mean, the fullness of God dwells in the tabernacle. And so they used to think, well, got to go to the tabernacle to meet God. And they made a mistake over that. And God won't be limited like that, so he tries to correct it. Who does he use to correct that little mistake that they made? Why, Solomon was used. And the time that he used to correct it was at the time when they dedicated Solomon's temple. And Solomon says a marvellous thing. It's in 1 Kings. So let's just turn back. In 1 Kings, in chapter 8, <clears throat> right, 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 26, and Solomon makes it clear here, you can't contain God like that. God will not be fitted into a nice little box. In verse 26 and verse 27, 1 Kings 8, 26 and 27. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. And here is a statement that even though God may dwell in the temple, he dwells everywhere else as well. And we'll see a statement of that a little later on. Incidentally, last time when I dealt with omnipotence, do you remember I made the statement that God is upholding the whole universe by his power? He's the one that keeps the planets on course. He is the one who makes sure every blade of grass grows. He's the one who feeds the sparrows. Now to do that, he's got to be omnipresent. Do you see, he's got to be everywhere to do it. Of course he's sitting on Mars and keeping it keeping it on course. Of course he is. And he's sweeping all the things out of the way in front of it. Of course he's dwelling in my back garden to make sure everything's growing. Of course he is. That's who God is. Of course he's out in the nebula just making sure that the black holes actually exist, things that are impossible. But he makes them possible. He's the one who dwells in all of these places. That's what omnipresence is about. So God dwells everywhere. Now can you see, 
with God dwelling everywhere, it's no problem for him to manifest himself in any place. He can manifest himself here. He can manifest himself the building down the street. He can manifest himself in Bogner tonight, on board the ferry coming in from Dieppe. He can manifest himself there, up in a jumbo jet that's flying above our heads at this time. God is there. God hears every whisper, you see, and the person sitting on a jumbo jet above Greenland can just say, Lord, I need you, and the Lord is right there. And at the same time, in millions of other places, he's right there as well, at our right hand. What a wonderful thing. And God can also actually physically manifest himself in any place. Just because he does it in one place doesn't mean he can't do it elsewhere. Omnipresence means he can do as he pleases where he pleases. You see? Let's uh, have a look at certain places where he, in fact, manifested himself. We saw this in the Trinity series earlier this course. Let's just go to Exodus and chapter 19. This is no problem to omnipresence. God can be fully here, but he's still fully elsewhere. It's not a contradiction. Here he appears to Moses. Exodus 19, verse 18. Or oh, I'm going to read verse 17 onwards. Here God reveals himself. And at the same time, he's everywhere else on the, fa place of, uh, on the face of this earth. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. There is the revealing of God. Right? Later on, from this time, he revealed himself in many, many places. Do you remember in the tabernacle? The cloud, the glory cloud used to come down. What is called sometimes the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah, by the way, is not found in Scripture at all. There's no passage that talks about that cloud as the Shekinah glory. But the word Shekinah is the Hebrew word to dwell. And what it means is where God dwelt, there this cloud came but not in every place that he dwelt, otherwise the whole earth and the whole universe would be filled with smoke. Only where he decided that he would dwell, that is where the cloud would go. But that didn't mean to say he wasn't anywhere else at the same time. He was in that place and everywhere else as well. Let's have a look at the Shekinah glory. Let's go to uh, Exodus 40, where it's more or less introduced to us. I know it... Uh, have fleeting appearances before. But in Exodus 40, verse 34, and here it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was dwelling right there, and at the same time everywhere else invisibly. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys. And if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And always that cloud appeared when God had presenced himself in that particular place. In other words, he could localize himself anywhere without destroying his omnipresence. The fact that he is m manifested in one place doesn't mean he's not anywhere else. He's everywhere at the same time, but manifested in this one place. One other scripture in Leviticus 16, and verse 2, Aaron is warned about this. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Now do you see what we have here? We have a tent, a tabernacle, we have the appearance of God, and we have the glory 
associated with it. And it's funnily enough, when you reach the Gospel of John, that you see these things coming together in the life of Jesus Christ. Who is this cloud? Why, it's Jesus himself. That's who it is. Whenever God decided to appear, it was, as we've seen in the Trinity talks, Jesus himself. And it's a lovely phrase that is used in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. Remembering all these, let's go to John 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. And if any of you have a Young's Literal, you'll see the impact of this verse. For what it says here, well, let me read it first. John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But when in verse 14 it says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the Word is the Greek word for tabernacled. The Word was made flesh, he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. And here is Jesus. Now, here is Jesus limited and manifested to one place at a time. For 33 years, Jesus would have to walk everywhere. But at the same time, Jesus was holding the whole of the universe together. At the same time, in his divinity, he was everywhere at once throughout the whole universe. Now, this is how mysterious this whole doctrine of omnipresence really is. Most wonderful thing. And Jesus, for 33 years, limited to a human body, and yet he wasn't limited at all. He was everywhere else. The verse in John 3, which you can look up for you, yourselves, where it actually says, who is he that came from above, and it's Jesus, is the one who came from above, which is also in heaven. And it's a statement there in the King James that while Jesus was on the earth at exactly the same time, he was in heaven as well. Most astounding statement, you see. But this is a mystery. How can God be manifested in one place yet be everywhere else at the same time? Well, he is. The Holy Spirit's the same. Do you know that? The Holy Spirit is everywhere at once and for all time, forever will be everywhere. And yet, what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? Well, let's turn to John 16. In John 16, in John 16, it says this, <clears throat> verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. It's good for you that I'm leaving. And when he went in his body to heaven, of course, his omnipresence still meant that he was on the earth. That's what's hard for us to really grasp. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And verse 13, how be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now the Holy Spirit, being God, is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So what does it mean when Jesus says, he will be sent to you? What it means is that God has a specific task for the Holy Spirit, and that task will not begin until Jesus is taken up into heaven. And when the Holy Spirit came with that specific task, he fulfilled and began to fulfill that task here on the earth. But in his omnipresence, he'd been here already. You see? It's in terms of task that he is being sent at that particular time. And do you know the Holy Spirit is present here, permanently dwelling in us for all time? Yet the day is coming when we read, don't we, that the Holy Spirit will be removed. Now, what's that about? Let's just check that. We've seen it in the prophecy series. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, do you remember we saw this passage in the Unfulfilled Prophecy series and we showed how this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And Paul says... This, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. There is an underground stream of iniquity which is bubbling up to the surface, and in our days, by the way, most of it's running over the surface. It's not very deep, but it's there, and we can pick it up. Now it says, 
Only he who now letteth will let. He who restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And part of the Holy Spirit's ministry in these days is to restrain evil. Now that's his ministry. The day will come when the Lord will say to the Holy Spirit, that is no longer your ministry, and don't do it anymore. That is the day that the Holy Spirit's ministry will be terminated, he will be sent back to heaven. And some people say, well, how are people going to get saved then? I mean, it's by the Holy Spirit you get saved. How are people going to be saved in the tribulation? Well, it's easy. The Holy Spirit may not be here in terms of his uh, being sent with a specific ministry, but he's still here through omnipresence. And any person who turns to the Lord will be born again by the Holy Spirit. So here's the mystery of omnipresence, right? You are everywhere at once, but at specific times, you are sent to specific areas. And that doesn't contradict omnipresence at all. Jesus has always been here, always. Yet there was a time when he was born in a manger and came among us. The Holy Spirit's always been here, yet there was a time when he was sent, when Jesus breathed on the disciples, and on the day of Pentecost, he arrived. That doesn't contradict omnipresence in the slightest way. Isn't it wonderful to know, by the way, that the devil isn't omnipresent? Isn't that nice? Praise the Lord. The devil's only in one place at a time. And that's why if two believers are saying that the devil's after them, one of them is wrong. Definitely. The devil can only be after one person at a time, although he has a huge army, may I say, who do his dirty deeds for him. But actually, the devil is in only one place. And wherever the devil decides to attack, he can never get to somewhere where God isn't, because God is omnipresent. Wherever the devil attacks, hoping he'll surprise God, God is ready to greet him at that particular time. Which is why the little boy who said, when the devil knocks at my door, I send Jesus is absolutely right. Jesus goes there anyway, of course, and answers the door, right? The lovely thing for us is, whenever the devil chooses to attack us, he has to get through God before he can actually do it. That's good news for every believer. <clears throat> so, immediately through omnipresence, God has the advantage over the enemy. Good news. All right, now there's omnipresence, but we've got now two problems. Two big problems. And these are problems that are thrown up whenever you talk about omnipresence. The first is this. Let me state it. If God is omnipresent, and he is, then surely he must be impure because he must come into contact with sin and sinful ways and worldliness. So I say that again. If God is omnipresent, and he is, Surely he must be contaminated, he must be impure. Because if he's omnipresent, he must come into contact with sin, and into contact with sinful ways, and into contact with worldliness. Now we know, don't we, from our studies so far, that God, the characteristic of God, is holiness. God is holy. So the question is, how can the holy God be omnipresent so that he dwells alongside evil? I mean, as we've seen already, God is actually present in hell. God is present in the lake of fire. God is present in a brothel. God, he has to be. Omnipresence dictates it. He's present in a prison. He's present in the evil heart of a sinner. How is it possible that a holy God can be present where evil is? Well, the answer is that he can be and without being contaminated. Again, let me give you an example. And this is one that does hold up, I'm pleased to say. But imagine um, a farmyard with piles of manure all over it. Can you all visualize that particular scene? And imagine a break in the clouds and a beam, a ray of sunshine hitting that farmyard. And can you see this ray of light hitting the manure? Now there you've got this pure, golden, wonderful light hitting the manure. Now the question is, does the manure in any way contaminate the ray of light? No, it doesn't. They both dwell alongside, one illuminates the other, but the other doesn't contaminate the first one, not in the slightest way. It is still a pure ray of light. Now in the same way, 
God dwells alongside evil, but is totally uncontaminated by it. In fact, I would say he is his own antidote to evil. Wherever evil is, he is totally isolated from it, and yet he's dwelling alongside. And in case that's too theological for you, why think of Jesus himself? Jesus, who was absolutely righteous, born into this sinful world, he dwelt and walked among sinners, he dwelt and walked in this sinful world, and yet it says that being tested in every way like us, he was without sin at the end of his life. And do you remember, everyone testified of his perfection. Everyone. Pilate said, this innocent, this is an innocent man. He washed his hands. You know, I find no fault in this person. Judas Iscariot says, I've betrayed innocent blood. They tried to bring witnesses against him, and no one could actually produce a genuine witness because he hadn't done anything wrong at all. No one was able to bring any accusation against him. And so Jesus is the personification, and he is the answer to the problem. Can God and evil dwell side by side without contaminating one another? Yes, the answer is certainly they can. You see, God is not contaminated in the slightest way by evil. So that's the first problem dealt with. The second problem is an obvious one as well. <clears throat> and the second problem says this. If God is omnipresent, how come the Bible sometimes says that God is near and sometimes says that God is far away? I mean, that's odd, isn't it? If God is everywhere, how can he be near and yet far away? You see, surely he's always near. Let's, uh, there are so many scriptures that uh, actually say he is near. Can we just go to one? Let's go back to Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. <clears throat> and this is what it says. And this is one of many, many verses that say this. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Now the implication here is that at the moment he's near, but at a later time he might be far away. Now hold on. How can you be omnipresent but sometimes far away? Aha. The answer is that when the, the word near or far are used in terms of God, it's not talking about geography. You're not talking about, you know, being positionally close to someone. What you're talking about is relationship. Let me give you an example which also holds water. Say I'm speaking at a large conference, and Roz and my two children are there, and I don't know anyone else. Say it's in Germany, right? And this is the first time I've ever been to Frankfurt, and we're speaking at this large place, and there's Roz, and there's David, and there's Karen on the front row. Now, do you see, geographically, I'm close to all of those people. But relationally, I'm only close to my family. We use that phrase, don't we? Yes, they're close family. You see? It's a matter of relationship that is being talked of. When we meet someone, sometimes we say, well, how did you get on with him? Well, I found him rather distant. That doesn't mean to say you sat and had a cup of coffee through binoculars. <laughs> doesn't mean that. You know, well, how did you find him? Well, with great difficulty. He was hidden <laughs> about three miles away. It's not talking geographically, it's talking in terms of relationship. Now what it is saying is this, that there is a time when God preaches the gospel to you. He is near. If you reject the gospel, there will come a time when your rejection is so total that in fact God will say, enough. Now he's still right by the side of you, but in fact he is far away from you now. Because in terms of reaching out to find him, you've already rejected, you've shut the door as far as he is concerned. And Jesus stands knocking on the door, but you've closed the door. This is talking about relationship. Do you see? It doesn't contradict omnipresence in the slightest way. We've got to get this clear, because otherwise you're going to find contradictory passages in the Bible. Let's um, go to Acts chapter 17, which is a passage I don't think I've ever covered before. But this little passage talks about God's omnipresence. Remember, omnipresence says this, he's not only close to us and living in our house, he lives in every unbeliever's house as well, geographically. He is present with them. Now that's what Paul is saying on Mars Hill here, right, in Athens. 
And in verse 22, it says this, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. This is Acts 17, 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you, you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar to this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all, breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Verse 28 is true of Christians and non-Christians. Now look what it says. For in him we live and move and have our being even non-Christians. That's geographical. Because God is omnipresent, of course it's true. Where Whatever space you occupy, God's occupying the same space. Right? So in him we live and we move and we have our being. We can't help it. You sit down at breakfast, Jesus is already sitting there. God's already there. You see? In him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring doesn't mean all are born again, but what it means is that we are only here because God created in the first place. If he hadn't created, we wouldn't be here. Then it goes on. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in the which... He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he has given us assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So there it is. So positionally, all unbelievers are close to God and God is close to them. But in terms of relationship, that's not true. Believers are close to God relationally. We're part of his family. Unbelievers are afar off. All right? To show you that, let's go to Ephesians 2 and see two verses in Ephesians 2. And here you'll see the use of the word near and far, and they can only mean a relational uh, closeness. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 13 and verse 17. Now, verse 13. And it says here, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Is that geographical? No, it's not. What it's talking about is the unbeliever is a long way away from God, relationally. By the blood of Christ, he's brought near. You see? Then, verse 17 having slain the enmity, of course, through the cross, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. There we are. So you've got these two people. Nothing actually to contradict omnipresence with. This is talking in terms of relationship. So omnipresence then, God is wholly represented everywhere. He can re uh, manifest himself in one place, but he's still everywhere else at the same time. Okay? When he does manifest himself in one place, it's for a specific purpose. He is everywhere, so everyone is near him, and yet those who reject him are far away from him in terms of relationship. So that's summed up what omnipresence is all about. All we have to see now is that Father's omnipresent, Jesus is omnipresent, and the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. So let's do this very quickly. Father is omnipresent, 2 Chronicles 2, verse 6. 2 Chronicles 2, and verse 6, this is actually Solomon again, and it's the same verse we read, but this time in Chronicles. As it talks about God, I'm assuming it's the Father. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 6, Who is able to build him a house? 
seeing the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a house save only to burn sacrifice before him? Now there is a statement that Father is everywhere, filling the heavens of the heavens. Jesus is said to be omnipresent in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Words he gave to the disciples as part of his teaching. Verse 19 and 20. Matthew 28, verse 19 and verse 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And here's the bit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, or as it's got it here, the end of the world. Amen. Now for Jesus to be with every believer to the end, he has to be omnipresent. He has to be where you are. So he's with you at work, he's with you on the bus, with you on the train, with you at home. Wherever you are, he's with you right until the end. So there's the omnipresence of Jesus. And the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit we've seen in uh, Psalm 139, verse 7. Whither can I go from his presence? Where can I run to away from his spirit? We saw that, I think it's verse 7 of Psalm 139. So if you look that up, there we've got them. So Father's omnipresent, Son's omnipresent, Holy Spirit is omnipresent, and it's good news. Okay, what does omnipresence mean for us as believers? What comfort can I gain? I can gain a lot of things from omnipresence. I'm going to talk about three. First of all, it's a most wonderful support to every one of us. Most wonderful support. In Matthew 28, and verse 20, when Jesus says, I'm with you always, even unto the end, what Jesus is saying is this, that wherever we are and whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, there he is. And what a support it is to know that Jesus is right there at our right hand. You see? Remember what I said earlier, Satan has to deal with Jesus when he comes knocking at your door. Because Jesus is where you are. Your life is hid with Christ in God. With Christ all the time. What a support that is. Hallelujah. So you don't have to shout through a megaphone for God to hear you. You can whisper into his ear because Jesus' ear is right by your mouth always and permanently. So that's the first thing. There's support. Secondly, great, great comfort. Let's see another verse. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. This is the comfort that we get. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Most people think that that's, you know, just in the Gospels. But here is a wonderful say, I will never leave thee, I will never forsake thee. And that can be said to every Christian through omnipresence. If God's om not omnipresent, if Jesus is not omnipresent, this cannot, statement cannot be made. Because when he's dealing with dear Simon over here, he can't be dealing with dear Kevin over here. But in omnipresence, he can deal with all of us at the same time. And you have his full attention, every one of you. Beyond our understanding, yet absolutely true. Then the next verse, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He's my helper. You can ring up into Australia and someone can say, oh, the Lord's just been speaking to me. And you can say, he's just been speaking to me as well. But the Lord's right here. Yes, he's right here as well. And it's, it, it's not exclusive. You can both have him. Hallelujah. And he's in every country that that phone wire passes through as well, which is lovely. So that we may boldly say, well, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The most wonderful news. And you who are members of the body of Christ, positionally and relationally, you're always close to him now. But the third thing I think omnipresence does for us is this. It motivates us to be holy. It motivates us to be holy. Because, you see, whatever we do, because of omnipresence, we do it in the presence of God. Now, we don't like to think about that. Most of us, when we sin, we like to be private you know 
Don't, isn't that true? I mean, very few people like to be known as a sinner openly and to sin openly. Sin is generally something done in secret. But omnipresence says this. You might think you're alone, but you're not alone. God is right there with you. And omnipresence makes every secret sin like this. It is as if you enter into heaven, approach the throne of grace, and sin right in front of God. Because omnipresence says that's exactly what you're doing anyway. Isn't it true that most of us like to sin privately? It is true. I remember once uh, in Chichester, I won't name the chap, but uh, I was just briskly walking along the road, and a certain minister pulled out in his car, and he had the window down, you know, and I stopped. I saw this car coming out to let him pass. And suddenly I thought, hello, it was this certain minister. And he saw me, and I knew there was something wrong. And he was chatting. And after we chatted for about five minutes, I saw the smoke rising, <laughs> you know, from where he had his hand. His hand was down the side of the seat, and there was this smoke rising up <laughs> and filling the car. And I got quite worried. I nearly said to him, you can set your car on fire if you're not careful. <laughs> but he must have thought, blow it. Fancy bumping into this chap at this point. And he was having a quick smoke, you see. And, of course, the Lord's little minister was sent along just to be <laughs> there by the side. Isn't it interesting? He didn't want me to see. Now, if that's true of me, a measly servant of the Lord, well, didn't he see that Jesus was actually sitting in the passenger seat? Isn't it funny? You see, it's true of us all. The other day um, in, in Bognor Regis, I was just driving uh, near my home on the way to the Tuesday meeting, and I saw someone right, who uh, isn't really a member of the fellowship, you know, someone who comes occasionally, and they were just about to go into the pub in Bognor Regis, you see. And I saw them, and they saw me. It was funny, and I was just about to wind down, and went to say, hello, and wave, and suddenly I saw, he turned, at right angles like this, and he walked as if he wasn't going in the pub at all. <laughs> it was so funny. So I thought I'd better not uh, show him that I've seen him, you know. And I suddenly thought, isn't it funny? We like to do things like that. His conscience must have been offended, you see. And here he was offended. And I just drove past my car, and he didn't want, no, no, didn't want me to see what he'd done. And yet Jesus was there in the pub. <laughs> isn't it funny? And he thinks that by, you know, turning on his heel, he can escape from the presence of the Lord. That's what he thought I represented. But Jesus was walking up with him. I mean, it's quite staggering. If we had a revelation of omnipresence, I think we would tend not to sin quite as much. Don't you think? Because we'd suddenly realize, look, Jesus is listening in to this, right? Jesus is knowing what's going on in this particular place. No one else does, but he does, you see. David actually said it, didn't he? Psalm 119 and verse 168. Don't turn to it, but let me just, I've written it in the margin here. All my ways are before thee. True. Job said it as well. Job 31 verse 4. Doth he not see all my ways? And the answer is yes. So omnipresence for us means tremendous support, tremendous comfort, but surely a calling to holiness. And last of all, let me just say this. What does omnipresence mean to the unbeliever? Omnipresence to the unbeliever means this. First of all, that he's never been away from God, ever. God has been living with him or her all of his or her life. And God has seen and heard everything. And what it means also is this, that try as he might to flee from the presence of God, he's never succeeded. And more than that, when his death comes, he will suddenly realize how futile the flight has been. For there will be God to meet him on the other side of death. And that's a very frightening thing. And yet something that as we get older, surely all of us see more clearly. It's great comfort to the Christian to know God's going to be there when we die. But to the non-Christian, the very chance that it might be so, is surely appalling. And sin which has not been dealt with, has not been confessed to the Lord, the sinner who has not called upon Jesus Christ, has nothing but fear and wrath awaiting him. That's why I want to end tonight's study in the book of Amos. The book of Amos and chapter 9. And I'm going to read verse 1 to verse 4. 
And I think these are verses that have to be thought about very carefully by every unbeliever. Amos chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 4. Look at this most carefully. It's a warning of destruction. That's what these four verses constitute. God may be invisible, but he is very real. Verse 1, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintels of the door, that the post may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And yet the truth is that just simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of God appearing as this fearful, wrathful judge, we suddenly see him as the loving Father, always there, always present, with his hands over, brimming with love and ready to meet any one of us. And that's why omnipresence has to be faced up to and why we have got to get a revelation of it. For no one can escape from his presence, try though they may. But Jesus is the answer. And through him, through his sacrifice, it is with boldness that we can approach the throne of grace. Amen. Next time, we'll be dealing with the eternality of God. That is that God is eternal and not bounded by time in any way. Let's just pray, shall we? Hallelujah, Lord. Father, hallelujah. Father, I, I'm always stunned, Lord, at the wonderful way that your Holy Spirit can speak truths which only you really can fully understand. And yet they seem to take root within us. And we know that there's true, that, that they are true. Father, I do thank you for the yea and amen that rises, the witness in our hearts that these things are true. And Father, as I think about this course and the many, many mysteries that we've talked about, and Father, to the natural man, they cannot be perceived, they cannot be understood, but we thank you that the spiritual man can understand everything which is given by the Spirit. And I would ask you to lead us more deeply into the mystery of our God, that indeed, Lord, we should be those who have the fear of God because we have the knowledge of the Almighty in our hearts and in our minds. Oh, Father, we long to serve you with all our hearts, all our souls, all our strength and all our minds. Oh, Father, we just ask you again to give us the fear of the Lord, which for us is the beginning of wisdom. We will cry out to you for the lost of this city, Father, we will cry out for the unbelievers in Jesus' name. Father, for the many lonely people, the many who know they're sinners, yet fight against it all the time. And Father, as you are omnipresent, I just ask, Father, in each of their houses tonight, that your convicting spirit will move upon them. That, Father, the harvest may be very great in this place, and that many should realize that there is God to deal with. And Father, we just ask that they may hear the good news of Jesus and turn and be saved. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.